0: open your copy of God's Word up to the uh, New Testament book of Luke. Uh, We're, of course, in Luke chapter 1, plugging away. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke in your New Testament, right side of your Bibles for you young ones. So Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. We're in Luke chapter 1. We've been uh, digging our way through this Uh, marvelous gospel that was penned by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And uh, just have been amazed, to put it lightly, uh, of the faithfulness of God in the affairs of mankind, amazed at how he would fulfill Old Testament prophecy and amazed how he would use uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth in spite of their age or their doubtfulness. And just amazed that God would declare such wonderful things to them, such as John's life and ministry even before uh, he was even born to his parents, Uh, just amazed that he would be intimately concerned with taking away the reproach uh, of men from Elizabeth and giving her joy in bearing a son. And yet as we push on through this epic work that Luke has penned for us, uh, hopefully all of us here are continually amazed and increasingly amazed at the faithfulness of the Lord because As we press on through our next text, he is about to bring us the best news that the world could ever hear, Uh, news that we continually needed to be reminded of, and that is the fact that God indeed does save sinners. And if you're a sinner, there's hope for you found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is about ready to bring the fulfillment of the preordained plan of redemption to sinful mankind and continue his rescue mission to save sinners. This is not plan B. This is not plan C. This is plan A. So let's look at our text today, beginning in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read to uh, verse 38 in order to get our context. Uh, Luke 1, 26 through 38. Um, If you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says this in God's Word. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. And kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your Elizabeth, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for You stepping into humanity to redeem us, Lord. Father, we just want to give this time to you and honor you with it, Lord. Help our minds to be transformed by the power of your gospel, the good news that God does save sinners. Help us all to realize that that you are a God who cares, that you are not silent, that you have not stepped back, But you are actively working today in our lives and the lives of people around this world, Lord. So, Lord, let us glorify you this morning and let our minds be just enamored with the love that you have expressed in sending your son. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Everyone has some has to do something with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us in this room, everyone in the the entire world has to do something with Jesus Christ. You can try to deny his existence and make the claim that there never existed a person or a character named Jesus. And by doing so, you would have to ignore the written testimony of the gospel writers themselves, such as Luke, who we read before earlier this year in Luke 1, 1 and 2. He said, "...inasmuch in as, as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word." You can try to ignore the testimony of Peter in 2 Peter 1.16, where he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You can ignore the testimony of Peter and John when they stood before the Romans' authorities, in Acts 4.20 when they said, For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And you can try to ignore the fact that we have over 5,686 copies, fragments, parchments of the New Testament. This is more than any other writing of antiquity by far. The next one back is the Homer of Iliad. And it has about 600 copies. We have 5,686, and it keeps increasing. And our date, we are within 100 years of the original writings. The Homer of Iliad, nowhere near. You can try to ignore and deny Christ and ignore the Christian historian Eusebius. You can try to ignore the Jewish historian Josephus. You can try to ignore the Roman historian Tacitus who wrote that Jesus suffered death by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. You can try to ignore the writings of Pliny, Suetonius, Lucian, Romans, all Romans about their testimony about Jesus Christ. You can try to ignore the blood of the martyrs such as Matthew who was killed by the sword, Mark was drugged by horses, Luke was hung in Greece. James the just was clubbed to death. James the son of Zebedee was beheaded. Bartholomew beaten to death. Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross. Thomas was reportedly stabbed to death. Matthias, who took Judas' place, was stoned and beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death. The apostle Paul, beheaded under Nero in Rome. And Peter was reportedly crucified upside down because he did not want to die in the same manner as his Lord. All of whom you would have to argue that they died needlessly for a story that they contrived. You can try to deny the blood of countless thousands of martyrs that suffered under Nero, Trajan, Diocletian, and Maximian. You can try to deny the impact that Christ has had on our hospitals. Drive down the road and you'll see Dublin Methodist Hospital. You can deny the effect that Christ has had on healthcare and social relief organizations. You can try and deny the impact that Jesus Christ had on elevating the social status and dignity of women. You can try to deny the impact that Jesus had on elevating human sexual morality. You can try and deny the impact that Jesus had on elevating the sanctity of human life. And so you can flat out try to deny that Jesus ever existed and deny all the empirical and historical evidence contrary to that. Thus, you will be living out what Paul described in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that you will be suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Or, your other option, you can say that Jesus was there, he, there was a guy named Jesus, he existed, but he was really just a, a good moral teacher, one of the many that have showed up in this world, such as Gandhi, or, or Buddha, or even Jimmy the Cricket. I mean, just simply let your conscience be your guide. You can dabble in Jesus Christ a bit, but you just don't want to go too crazy with this whole Jesus and Christianity thing. You can go to an Easter service or a Christmas service at a church and and get your fill of him as long as there's no commitment required. You're on speaking terms with Jesus when you need him, and you're all right with that. You can embrace other religions equally because you respect diverse viewpoints, and you believe that there are many paths to God, and Jesus is just one of those thousands of different options to get there. You worship a tolerant and embracing Jesus Christ because he's pretty close to being as tolerant and embracing as you are. You can deny that Jesus did any miracles, just as the Jesus seminar people or uh, even Thomas Jefferson, whom we've talked about, but you'll still be on good terms with Jesus. You can check your horoscope, you can visit a tarot card reader, you can count your lucky stars. You can talk to an astrologer on a 1-900 number and, and still occasionally break out your Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, and you're all good with him. You can believe in reincarnation, out-of-body experiences, karma, luck, positive thoughts, Ouija boards, chance, Darwinian evolution, the Big Bang, the Easter Bunny, rabbit's feet, and have a coexist sticker on your bumper sticker on your car, and you can celebrate Earth Day because Jesus was loving and tolerant, and he was accepting, so why shouldn't you be? There's no need for sacrifice on your part for the sake of Christ. There's no denial of self-needed. There's no obedience to his commandments required. There's only a need to take up your cross, which you translate as to owning a jumbo cross necklace, and put it on whenever you feel like it, and on your own terms, to show everyone that you think the cross is a cool symbol. Or, your last option, is you will worship Him as Lord and Savior. You will take Him at His word. You affirm that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords because you want to honor Him. You will believe Him to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You will know Him as prophet, priest, and king. You will declare Him to be the only sufficient Savior. You will understand Him to be the only mediator between man and God. You will obey Him and His commandments because you love Him. And because of Him, you will work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you revere Him. You will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. You will be disciplined for the purpose of godliness for Him. You will take every thought captive and bring them into the conformity of Christ for Him. You will watch your doctrine carefully for Him. You will walk as you ought to in order to please Him. You will make your ambition to know Him and make Him known. You will labor and strive to glorify Him. You will take pains and be absorbed with godliness. You will be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. You will fight the good fight of faith and run in such a way as to win the prize. You will deny ungodliness and worldly desires. You will live sensibly and godly in this present age. You will be zealous for good deeds." You will declare him to be the only, immortal, almighty, holy, just, good, true, righteous, merciful, loving, wise, powerful, graceful, eternal, immutable, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and sovereign king of the universe. And if you can't tell, I'm having trouble with coming up with words to describe him. You can't just be on the team for the sake of Jesus Christ. Being in the stadium for Christ is not enough. Wearing the jersey and being on the bench is not enough. You will run the race to pursue Him with diligence and labor and strive. So the question for you today, what are you going to do with Jesus? If you deny Him, He will deny you before His Father who is in heaven. Matthew ten thirty three says, If you try to keep one foot in the world and one foot following Christ, and you are neither hot nor cold, he will spit you out of his mouth, he said in Revelation three sixteen. But if you are going to follow Jesus Christ, you must enter by the narrow gate, and you must love him more than your father or your mother or your son or your daughter, your prestige, or your possessions. And you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily to follow him. Luke 9.23 tells us, C.S. Lewis was more simplistic in his view, in his words, and he says, are you going to believe Jesus to be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? And so as we come to our text this week, we begin with the birth of the one who would become our Lord Jesus Christ. We have an announcement of another birth. We have another woman, another son, another town, another miracle, and another couple. This conception would be supernatural, just like Elizabeth's. This conception would involve the Holy Spirit, just like Elizabeth's. And this birth would result in many people rejoicing, just like Elizabeth's. But that's about where the similarities will end. Because this birth will be one in which the entire world take notes of. Even today, the year 2014 is based on the significance of that birth. And just so you don't get caught up, beloved, in some uh, semi-sharp quasi-believer, the date is about five years off. Okay? Just so you know. But we are living in the year 2014 A.D., Anno Domini. The year of our Lord. So, as we look at our text, starting in verse 26, it says this. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So, once again, we see here how Luke is a meticulous historian for us. We've noted this before, and that Luke is very helpful to us in establishing times and places and people who would be in power as these things occurred, right? The who, what, where, when, and how? We've seen that in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. Now in the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the entire, of all the inhabited earth. rather. We'll see that in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Syria, or governor of Judea, rather, Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Chaconatus. Licinius was Tetrarch of Abilene. So he's telling us who was in power, where they were at. He's telling us the times and places and being a historian for us. So in this text, he's telling us that this is the sixth month. This is a reference to Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, and he's giving us the time so we can know that John the Baptist and Jesus were roughly six months apart. But incredibly, as we mentioned before, with Gabriel's appearance to Zacharias in the temple, this was the first time in 400 plus years since God had spoken, but this time, not only did he speak once, but six months later, he speaks again. This time, it would be the most monumental announcement of a birth that the world has ever known. This time, it would be the most significant event That the world has ever known. So much so that Christmas, in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus, is arguably the most widely celebrated holiday by more people and more nations than any other holiday. And it's not celebrating human achievement, or like Independence Day, or social or economic uh, movements like Labor Day or Martin Luther King Day. And although, like everything else in the world, its meaning is kind of being lost to the significance, but nonetheless, it remains a day in which the Lord intervened by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. And so more nations and and more people celebrate the significance of that intervention. And then he goes on in verse 26 to tell us that the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Gabriel, whose name literally means the strong man of God, is coming from God's heavenly realm to Mary's earthly realm to bring her a message, just like he did Elizabeth through Zacharias. And so as we read about these events and places and different people, we have to understand behind all of this is God. God in his sovereign plan is bringing about the redemption of humanity By sending forth his son that he might offer himself up as a sacrifice for sinful mankind. And yet, he's using Zacharias and Elizabeth to birth John, the Baptist, to pave the way for the Lord. He's using Gabriel to deliver that message. And he's using Jesus for the pleasure of the Lord. That's what Isaiah 53.10 says. And I think this is one of the most powerful verses in Isaiah. It says this, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Talking about Jesus, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then also in verse 26, Luke tells us where all this is occurring. It says that Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So we need to understand that this is not really like a city. I think the, the NESB translators might have done a little bit of a, a, an embellishment with this. But it's not really a city as you and I would understand this in the modern sense. This was not a thriving metropolis. Uh, this wasn't a major thoroughfare. It didn't have any major trade routes to it. But this was a small, obscure village of only a few hundred people about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It was so obscure that Luke has to tell us, so his Gentile readers will understand, that it's in the region of Galilee. Jerusalem would be in the region of Judah, Samaria, just north of that, a region there, and just to north of that would be Galilee. Now, if we stop here and, and look for a moment, we can see three great contrasts that we can see here. In Just this verse, look at this. In the previous announcement about John, Gabriel came to a priest. Contrast that with the announcement of Jesus. Gabriel came to a young woman. In the the announcement of John, it happened during a public worship service. But with the announcement of Jesus, it came to her in privacy. And in the announcement of John, it came to the holiest place of all of Israel the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. But with the birth of Jesus, the announcement there, it came in a little, small, rural village named Nazareth. So there's this huge contrast we see with the greatness of the announcement of John the Baptist and the simplicity of the announcement of Jesus Christ. But isn't that the way the Lord works sometimes? Sometimes in a serene, quiet simplicity... Elijah experienced this on Mount Horeb when the Lord uh, had defeated the prophets of Baal. And, and Elijah is on the run from Jezebel, who's pursuing him in 1 Kings 19. And, and God told him to go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And in 1 Kings 19 11, it says this, listen to this, And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking to pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and spoke to the Lord. We always seem to look for these big, spectacular events that says that God is moving. He's moving here, he's moving there. The modern day church growth gurus would tell you that big crowds and big buildings buildings are evidence that God is moving amongst our nation. Million dollar budgets, multi-campus churches are clearly the sign of both God's blessing and his presence. But you know what? Sometimes God moves in the smallest in most simplistic of ways. Sometimes God shows up where you least expect it. Sometimes God does things that we could have never, ever have foreseen. And sometimes God uses the least expected of all people. But modern American Christianity is rampant with people who are constantly looking for signs and wonders. You can take your selection of any number of churches in the Marysville area and abroad and look for big buildings and big attendance numbers and huge turnouts during their outreach events, light shows, miniature rock concerts as an experience, all to say that God is moving. God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And my question to those churches are, you strip all that stuff away, get rid of the lights, get rid of the fanfare, and are those people still going to come? Would they still have that sense of wonder and awe about God if they didn't have that? in their presence. But God moves sometimes in the most simplest of ways, using the most unlikely people during the most unforeseen times. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and 28 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. And so as we look at these three great contrasts between the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, we can see how the great and mighty God of heaven sends the gift of salvation to humans in a quiet, unadorned package of simplicity. Verse 27, it says, "...to an angel engaged to a man whose name was Joseph..." Of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now we're going to address the virgin birth, or probably more accurately, the virgin conception, uh, in a few weeks here, and we will answer the question of is it necessary for you to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? Now there are several reasons that we'll address, but more specifically, uh, we're going to address that when we get down to about verse 34. But this week I want us to look at. Why it is that Luke tells us that Mary was engaged to a man named Joseph and that he was a descendant of David. Why is this information important? Why does Luke tell us that? I mean, Luke tells us a couple times that Jesus was from the lineage of David. In Luke 2.4, he says that during the census that was to be, to be taken, it says that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem why because he was from the house and family of David Luke chapter 3 verses 23 and 38 tells us that the genealogy of Jesus to the to the son of God uh, but in the midst of that in verse 31 he tells us that he was in fact the son of David even other New Testament writers emphasize that Jesus was the son of David. Matthew 1.1 opens up with the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Paul, Romans 1, verses 1 through 3, says, Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophet, prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Paul, when he wrote to 1 Timothy, his beloved Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2 and 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Even in Revelation 22, 16, Jesus is speaking to John, revealing future events, and he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So, Luke writes about it, Matthew writes about it, Paul writes about it, Jesus through John writes about it. What's so important about Jesus being of the lineage and descendant of David? Why is that important? Well, first of all, there's two simple reasons for this. First of all, number one, it shows us the faithfulness of God. It shows us the faithfulness of God. Now, how in the world does it do that? Well, because back in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 7-12, we find what's called the Davidic Covenant. The great unconditional promise of God to David that there will be a great son of David. Not Solomon, but one far greater and one who will have an everlasting kingdom. Although Solomon is a great king, and it will be a partial fulfillment of that promise, he is not the promised Davidic king. There will be one whose kingdom will endure forever and ever and will never be interrupted and will last into eternity. And so 2 Samuel 7:12, the Davidic covenant, this is God speaking. He says, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Psalm 89, verses 34 through 37 reaffirms this covenantal agreement between God and David, which reads... My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterances of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Jeremiah spoke of the Messiah coming from the lineage of David in Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. And he said, in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, which some of you may be familiar with, emphasizes the fact that David's throne will be inherited, eternal, and secure, and thus the promises of the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled by God. We read this at... uh, Christmas time sometimes. Rome, or Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. For th- From then on, And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so when God covenanted with David to bring forth the Messiah through his lineage and establish his throne forever, there's only one person who could ultimately ever fulfill that role, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenantal promises that God made to David. He is the greatest king and no one will ever come after him as greater. You see, our God is a God who keeps his promises. Our God is a God who keeps his covenants. So why is it important in Luke one twenty seven that Joseph is of the descendant of David? To show us God's faithfulness in keeping his promises and his covenants. And then secondly, it shows us Jesus' humanity, his humanity. Now, you might say to me, well, if God's the father of Jesus, how can Joseph claim to be his father and thus that lineage of David be passed on? How does that work? Well, although Joseph was not Jesus' natural father, his adoption of Jesus made him legally part of David's lineage. But not only that, Mary also had lineage from the line of David as well. And so, both in the legal sense through uh, Joseph and in the physical sense through Mary, Jesus Christ fulfilled being the son of David and being Israel's true eternal king. But why is it important that we know that Jesus was human? Well, as a man, he was. Able to help those who are tempted, Hebrews 2.18 says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And as a man, he is able to show how to be the perfect example and show us perfect obedience. Philippians 2.5 and 8 says, Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then also as a man, he is able to become the mediator between God and man. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, as a man, he is able to make atonement for sin, satisfying the wrath of God. Romans 5.18 and 19 says this, So then, as through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men, that's Adam. And even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men, that's Jesus. For as though one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one who many, the many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, the son of David, the son of God. And so a great question to ask those people in this day and age, and it kind of brings us back to the beginning, of those people who would deny all the empirical evidence in the, in the history that there existed a person named Jesus Christ, and, and just say, oh, he's make-believe, right? The question to ask those people is, what virgin birth do you believe in? For the atheist. Going backwards in time, their virgin birth is called the Big Bang. Nothing before that, no explanation, no reason why there was something rather than nothing, but their virgin birth is simply exploding chaos, and then at some point with time, matter, and chance mixed together, here we are. For the Christian, the virgin birth is God solemnly coming onto the scene of humanity, prophesied before that, foreordained and foretold by God through his prophets, the mighty work of the divinity, clothing himself with humanity so that he could redeem us. See, God is faithful. When God speaks and God says something, it will be accomplished. We covered that a couple weeks ago. Well, Beloved, God is coming back. And we do not know the day nor the hour. And you should not even listen to anyone who tells you that God's coming back in May of 2012 or whenever that was last. But we're called to be ready. Ready in such a way that when he does come, that you do not shrink away. You have no shame. Because your life and you know your salvation depended upon him and him alone. Our God is faithful, and he's coming back. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, even when our hearts are so feeble and so weak, Lord. So many times through the week, we don't talk to you. We don't pray to you. We don't depend upon you. We're so wayward sometimes, Lord. But you are our rock and our strong shield and our strong tower. In whom there is no shadow of turning. We can depend upon you because you are faithful and true. So Lord, let us cling to you. Let us run to you. Let us not be ashamed at your coming. Father, we want to love you and praise you and give you all the glory. Father, you are so good to us and so good to this church, Lord. Let us have hearts full of gratitude and full of joy for what you have done in redeeming us. We just thank you for this time together, Father. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.